As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I think in Hollywood, you know, if you have a hangnail, you're out. So forget MS. It's over. But I feel like I'm going out there to you know, to take the hits for everybody else because, um, I don't know, I think if you have MS, you shouldn't, t- I kind of advocate, I tell people, don't tell people that you have it because you will be discriminated against and you will be shunned and you might even get fired. I mean, I've, I've met people that say, I told my boss I had MS and they fired me. So I don't think it's fair, you know, it really isn't. Comedy legend, actress, and multiple sclerosis survivor, Terry Garr, about her brand new book, Speed Bumps, Flooring It Through Hollywood. Listen to this captivating comedy legend with me, Fausto Fernos. And me, Mark Fillion. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking with Terry Gar. I know. I'm excited, too. For those of you who've been living underneath a rock for the last two decades, who is Terry Gar, Mark? Well, Terry Gar is actress. Terry Gar is well known for a role in Mel Brooks's Frankenstein as the amply chested nurse. Ah, uh, with the, with the, the good the, knockers. The good knockers, yeah. Listeners may remember her from her Oscar-nominated role as the angst-ridden girlfriend to Dustin Hoffman's cross-dressing Tootsie. 
Well, she came up with the line, I am responsible for my own orgasm, damn it. Which Why won't you love spoke me? spoke for a generation of women. And uh, a she... generation of gay men, too. <laughs> she worked with well-known directors uh, for, such as Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and Sidney Pollack. So that's quite a resume there. Mm-hmm. And before she became an actress, Terry Gar was a dancer like her mother, who was a rock cat. Gar danced in nine Elvis Presley movies. Her first big TV break was in the original Star Trek series as the ditzy blonde secretary that does the right thing in the Back to the Future episode called Assignment Earth. Which was supposed to be a uh, miniseries. Well, it was going to be a spinoff, right. It was going to be a spinoff, but alas, Star Trek got canceled. and Those stupid Paramount executives didn't know what a genius Terry Gar was. (laughs) I know, they're idiots. Uh, She also performed on the Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour. That's amazing. Well, let's listen to the actually to our interview that we had. Early, what you wanted to say something else? Well, yeah, I just I'm also sorry. wanted to say that after twenty years that, uh, of symptoms, Gar was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in two thousand and two. Which, uh, the, uh, hence the book Speed, Speed Bumps, Bumps flooring it through, through Hollywood. Hollywood. So let's listen to our interview that was done early one Saturday morning mm-hmm. with Terry Gar over a nice hot c- cup of coffee. Hello. Hi, Terry. This is Fausto Fernos. And Mark Fillion with the Feast of Fools podcast. How no, you doing? I'm not in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> All that, no, I am. I just did, so I did, it's better we did it this way because I did this long other interview, so. Okay. So now we can just. Take a bi- bit, di- big, deep, deep breath, breath. And relax and. And unwind with us, your, your loving gay friends in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, good. Throughout the world. (laughs) And throughout the world, we have listeners in Asia and Africa and far remote parts of Europe, and they're all eager to hear you talk to us about your career living with multiple sclerosis and your new book, Speed Bumps. That's correct. Flooring it through Hollywood, um, which is available through Hudson Street Press. And Penguin. And Penguin, too. And Amazon. And And Amazon. Everything. Everything. And you can actually, uh, if you want to buy it directly through Amazon, visit our website, feastoffools.net. And thank you so much for joining us, Terry. What? I don't know. Someone's like... Someone's trying to call you? No. Someone's trying to talk to me. And I'm I'm doing an interview. God damn it. (laughs) Who's that? Is it your daughter? No, it's uh, something about the dog. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. You can take care of your dog. Okay. Here's my dog. Hi, Cleo. How's Hi, Cleo. <laughs> so one thing I uh, wanted to start the interview with is sort of talking about the beginnings of your career as an actress and as a dancer. And uh, one thing we were really impressed upon the book was the uh, the school, the Long Island Expressway. <laughs> oh, right. That's a good school, isn't it? <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, um, in the book I describe when you're you know growing up in Hollywood and doing all this work that it's hard to get a a job or an interview so i decided to pad my um my resume a little bit and i felt it wasn't fair to really full out lie little did i know that it is fair <laughs> so i would put a few things on my my resume that looked good like um Desire Under the Elms at the Circle and Square Theater, and uh, The Three Sisters, directed by Lee Strasberg. But by all these things that I added, I put a little asterisk. And then at the bottom of the page, there was an asterisk 
an asterisk that said L-I-E. <laughs> and, you know, of all the places I took the resume, no one ever asked me, what does L-I-E stand for? It stands for lie. You know, it's a lie. That one is a lie. That one is a lie. But if anyone ever did ask me, I was going to say uh, Long Island Expressway. <laughs> And hopefully I could get away with that. that. Was my second way of getting away and with it. A lot of a lot of people saw that resume, and not one person ever got it. One person said, "What what is LIE?" And I think I just said, "Oh, that means it's not true." Said, oh, <laughs> I don't think he was even listening to me. So you know, my point was to get an audition, okay? Right. And I would have gone to any lengths, and I did. Well, in your book, you mentioned too that it was like it's all about the headshots. Yeah, it is. It's a, they get your head shot. Well, it used to be. I guess now they probably do all the casting on the internet. But yeah, they had. They used to have a book called uh, The Player's Guide, and everybody you had to have your picture in there with your agent and the number. And yeah, the, if you, so if you saw they were casting something and then you saw the picture, go well, okay, we'll bring them in. But then once you got in, you didn't get a chance to audition until you could do some fast talking or have some slick resume, which I did. <laughs> now, you came from a family of vaudevillians, and I was kind of wondering if if your family, looking back upon your early parts of your career, and, you know, there was there could have been a possibility that you couldn't have been a successful actress like you are today and had this, like, prolific career. And I was wondering if how your family how reacted being performers and, and being in show business themselves. Well, you know, my uh, my father and mother were, in, you know, my mother was a rockette, and my father was in vaudeville, and he was an on bro- actor on Broadway, and they met in a Broadway show. So they were, yeah, very much uh, New York Broadway people. Well, were they but, concerned? I mean, like, they were like, you know, Terry, don't go into this. It's- yes, they were. <laughs> but, you know, my dad passed away when I was 11, and my mother had to raise three kids, and my two older brothers... They got the message, don't go into show business. It will kill you. It will try to kill you. <laughs> but I didn't get the message, I guess. I missed it. What, mm-hmm. what made you so different, though, what, Why from your brothers? and? Well, you know, it was interesting because my mother went into uh, costuming at the studios. So I was still, you know, young, and I would go and visit her. I would take the bus over after school and, and just wait with my mom. And here I was at these studios and the television studios and movie studios and seeing all these lights and cameras and costumes and say, well, hey, this is for me. This is a much better life than real life. And little did I know that it wasn't real life at all. It was just fantasy land. But I think that's where I feel like I got bitten by it, was I was in the studios and I was like, this place is so important. Because, you know, I would watch TV at home, too. And then Mm -hmm. these people, every single person here, even the chorus girls have their names in the shoes. I mean, it's a very important place. So I want to be part of this. Um, you know, sort of a defense thing, but that's how I think I got interested. Well, that was uh, you guys were living in in California, yeah. so yeah. Right. So had your family like growing up in Indianapolis, for example, or Chicago, you might not have had the same career that you would have had. Probably, if it was Indianapolis, I would have been in the um, Indy Five Hundred business. <laughs> <laughs> if it was Chicago, I would have been in the mafia. Oh yeah, okay, because you know we're in the mafia. I could say, see you in the mafia as a mafia. You know, a, a sweetheart with a machine gun in your back. Oh God! <laughs> now let's talk about your uh, your beginning as a dancer and auditioning for Elvis. You pretty much dance in every single Elvis movie. Well, I danced in a lot of them because he was doing a lot of them. I mean, he was doing like five, five of day or five bad <laughs> movies a year with a capital B. But um, I worked in West Side Story with. Um, it was one of my first jobs in Jerry Robbins. It was a really legit big dance job. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who was in the chorus, David Winters, got the job to choreograph 
uh, one of the movies. So he said, anybody wants to come to this audition over at MGM? So we went, well, all right, why not? So we went into this audition, and it was for this Elvis Presley movie. And, of course, we all got hired because we were brilliant dancers. Mm. And he was our friend and hired us. So um, that's how I got in the Elvis. And once you were in one, they had a thing then called Central Casting. And then they'd just keep calling you. So it wasn't just Elvis movies. I danced in, uh, you know, uh, oh, what, was that? Uh, what a Way to Go with Shirley MacLaine and some mm. other John Goldfarb. Please get just a lot of da- movies I danced in one after another. And they they turned out so many of these movies too. That it was like you were working pretty consistently during oh, that yeah. time I as a dancer. Living at it. So that I did that, and then there was all those beach party movies. And it was just the tail end of those Hollywood musicals. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that that was how I got into those but uh, doing the Elvis movies was fun and was your first uh, as I understand your first speaking role on in a on television was in Star Trek is that correct yeah that is pretty much because yeah. I just I saw that pr- pretty recently like this th- within the past year I was yeah. I turned it on and I was like reruns. and, I, and I, you know I had seen it as a kid but then I was just like oh my gosh that's Terry Garr and I was just like, I was just so fascinated I had to, I sit down I sat down and watched the whole thing and I was just I was mesmerized because I was just like God, what were you? You were like twelve <laughs> back I was then. Very young, but you, you probably were mesmerized by that costume. That was costume was something. <laughs> I think he <laughs> wanted to wear it. Terry. Pink and orange. It was the worst thing I have ever seen. And at the time, I thought this is beautiful. Oh, it was beautiful. Mini no. skirt, mini skirt. Well, I've always felt impressed upon the 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 sort of the stylization of that television program that everything was in bold colors and I mean did you feel like this was a bad move or did were you felt glamorous or when when you were going to get into I mean you were talking to a guy with pointy ears you didn't know no are you kidding I was so thrilled that I even got to the job I would have done anything you know well uh, but I thought that uh, thing was also a spin-off pilot and actually at this point I'm glad it didn't sell but if it had sold I'd be you know where William Shatner is, say, on Boston Legal. No. I don't. Well, you're on Law and Order now. I'm so. on Law and Order. I know. It's like one of my fa- Every time I see you on television, Terry, I'm always squealing with delight. Well, you doll. Thank you. Thank and. You. So uh, uh, the Star Trek experience, so it was just, it was like an open cattle call, and you were just, uh, how did you get the part doing that? You know, I can't even, I think, I'm not even sure I had an agent then. Oh, I had some little agent, but there was someone in my acting class who knew about this audition. They were looking for someone for this part, and they'd been combing the area, and everyone's auditioning. And somehow he got me an audition to meet the casting director, so I... So then when I auditioned, I thought, well, that'll be as far as it goes. And mm-hmm. then they said, no, we want you to come back for a screen test. I went, wow, screen test, this will be this will be really great. And I thought that was as far as it would go. When I got the job, I thought, I can't believe this. It was now, great. was the part written for, like, a, the ditzy kind of blonde? Or was it? Or... you? What do you mean by that? <laughs> no, was... Well, they're very kind of flustered, like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? I don't understand. Because yeah, it seems yeah. you, you, you've, kind of, you've kind of channeled that a few times in your career. Well, then, yeah, after I did that... Um, you know, because those kind of TV shows, and especially in those days, have the ripple effect. You do one part, and then someone goes, well, let's use her in our show. So then I, right after that, I started doing, I think it was It Takes a Thief, with the same, basically the same character, and then some other show, it's, uh, McLeod. And, yeah, it was always the same kind of uh, non-feminist woman who was bumping into walls, but really smart underneath. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that led to the Sonny and Cher show, and that, you know, or... It was Star Trek, sort of like a... Well, Star Trek was one of the first things I did as an actress, and then I, it took me 10 years to actually start making a living as an actress. 
because I went, oh, good, I'm in. I'll just be an actress now. But I was still dancing in movies. And then it wasn't so easy. I signed with William Morris, and I went, okay, now we're going. And the ball is rolling. And William Morris promptly forgot me. So I went right back into, you know, shindig and those shows I would dance on, or the movies, dancing movies. But studying, acting, and doing plays the whole time until finally, you know, I got a couple breakthroughs, you know. Well, one thing that always uh, impresses me upon reading your book, Speed Bumps, and reflecting on your career is that your auditions almost seemed as theatrical as and in, and colorful as your performances in your films. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's true. You know? They are. Auditions are... <laughs> but you have to go to like a million of them before you can get one job. That's why I started treating them like rehearsals. You know, I'm just going to this audition. I'm not getting this job. I just want to see what the lay of the land. What's it like there? And a couple of the jobs I would get, but I think... You have to learn how to audition and how to present yourself, you know. When I love that you were saying that uh, the way you auditioned for Young Frankenstein mm -hmm. for Mel Brooks' film was that you were working on the Sonny and Cher show right. at the I was, time? I was working on Sonny and Cher show, and that was another one where I heard there was a lot of people going up to that movie. And uh, it was for the part of the fiancé, the Madeline Kahn part. So when I went in there, Mel Brooks was very funny and nice to me. And he said, you know, I really want Madeline Kahn to be play this part, but she doesn't want to do it because she just did the, a comedy and she wants to do something else. So I said, well, all right, but I'll keep trying. So he had like two or three callbacks. Finally, by the third callback, he said, well, unfortunately, Madeline has decided that she wants to do this movie. I said, oh, well, okay, nice meeting you. And he goes, no, but if you can come back tomorrow with a German accent, I'll let you audition for the, <laughs> the part of Inga in the movie. So I, you know, when I was working on the Sonny and Cher show, Cher's, uh, hairdresser, a wig maker, her name was Renato, and she was from Dusseldorf. <laughs> and so I just did an imitation of her, and then I got the part with some socks in my bra. <laughs> yeah, they said that you have the cheapest boob job in Hollywood. Well, it was two two fifty for each pair of socks. So yeah. <laughs> and on, with uh, adjusting for inflation, it's still the cheapest boob job, I, I would say. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and very healthy, kind of, you know, not very harmful. So, what was your experience like on the, uh, doing the Sunny and Cher show? What was the what was the, what was that like? Well, you know, I had to dress her, I had to comb her hair, I had to do everything for her. <laughs> Give her her, really? her look. Oh, it was great. it was great fun. But you know, it was very. Um, there was Sunny and Cher, and then there was about, there was five guys and one girl, me, and we did the sketches and the they you know it's this comedy show mm -hmm. and. The guys made $600 a week, and I made 250 a week. Every wow. single week, I would go into the office and go, you know, I think I should have a raise. And they go, honey, 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 no. And I was just doing more work well, that, than that, they were. And I said, you know, equal pay for equal things. And they said, okay, then quit. Because oh, that, that was uh, starting to be an issue back then in the early, in the early well, 70s, yeah. the equal pay for equal work. And exactly. Well, quite... you were reading a lot of feminism. I mean, <laughs> feminism has sort of influenced your comedy. And your timing, and certainly like in the film Tootsie. Right, yeah. When I was doing Tootsie and I saw that the character was one of those people that was caught between really wanting a career and really wanting to get married and, get, you know, all that confusion. And so I did a lot of research on, and that was the height of the, you know, feminist Ms. magazine and stuff. So I read all the books about it. You were reading and Betty Free Dan. Now, were you reading these because you wanted to read them, or you were reading because you were, we were preparing for a role? See, I was looking for stuff, stuff about this woman, that why she was so feisty and stuff, because uh, my character, you know, I've learned to do all this stuff in my acting class. You build mm -hmm. a character by right. creating all this stuff. So I was reading all that stuff just to, I, I couldn't really relate to it too much myself, especially I was looking for stuff that was funny. And mm -hmm. that Sherry Height had a book that was really funny. I can't remember the name of it. 
I don't, I don't remember. But I don't that was the one that she said. Uh, it was a pretty sexy book. Mm-hmm. She, she was the one that said, you are responsible for your own orgasm. And I thought, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. It, but it's funny, and I want to say it in the movie. It is. Sydney, let me say it. Well, it did is. you always feel like at odds with feminism or the message that was coming out no, at, at no, the no. time? No, no, no. I or? really thought that it was a good idea. You know, and growing up, as I said, with my mother who worked in the studios and costuming, uh, there was a story where I once was visiting my mom, and she was schlepping this big rack of costumes back to the stage, and, and she said, oh, my friend Wes, he just got a raise. And I said, well, are you going to get a raise too, Mom? And she goes, oh, no, 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 you know, Wes has, he has a wife and a kid he has to raise. I said, but Mom, you don't have any husband, and you have three kids. Why don't you get a raise? She says, no, no, I'm just going to be quiet. And it, she did the exact same work that he did. And, I, you know, a little light went off in my head right then and went, this isn't right. Why is this? Because women are less than men? No, I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, that's the way these issues start going. You know, if it wasn't for some kid or, or Rosa Parks or somebody going, this isn't right, I'm the same as you, I want to do what you do, then things would never change. So... Well, I always felt that, that feminism was sort of also examining ideas that weren't being examined before, which is sort of the gender roles. and. Yeah, I think so, too. You know. And that's, you know, I was, Tootsie was definitely about that. It was a man in a woman's dress, all right? And then Mr. Mom was a movie that I did at the same time mm-hmm. when the husband says, all right, honey, you go to work and I'll stay home and be, you know, there's nothing to it, just to, you know, be a housewife. And then you see that the housewife was a big full-time job, but it, you're treated just like, the wife dash slave. Now, did you did you get the part in Mr. Mom because because of uh, because Tootsie. of Tootsie? And because the... I slept with Michael Keaton. And, <laughs> no, I never did. Um, Good for I you. Don't remember what it was? I think it was. Because I mean, that, your line your line in Tootsie about the the female or about the or being responsible for your orgasm is, is such a classic. I mean, it's just it's the one thing I think you remember out of the movie. Well, it's probably most. what landed you, and you wrote that yourself. Yes, I did. Well, I mean, I stole it from Sherry Hyde, but boy, there was but, I mean, you chose to incorporate it into your improvisation, and I was wondering, did you ever when you were because I, I understand you were hesitant, you didn't want to do Tootsie at the time right. when you were being considered of it. Where, did you ever consider, thought you were, this is like Oscar-worthy material saying, I'm responsible for my own orgasms? No, I mean, no, no, I never thought that. But I was trying to do, you know, the best I could with the job. And, you know, and I thought the part was so interesting. That part be- came into view when uh, Elaine May did a swipe at the script, and she's so brilliant, and she made that, she really fleshed it out. I think it was a very funny character. So, you know, I was happy to do it. But I did think, you know, I had just done one from the heart, which was the leading part in one in the Francis Coppola movie. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't so sure I should step down. You know, I'm building a career here, kid. What well, seemed like he he was struggling financially, and then the the critics just tore it apart. They had the, they yeah. had a lot of pleasure in seeing you guys suffer, so to speak. Right. Well, the movie hadn't come out yet, so I thought it was going to be a big hit. Oh. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to be an awfully big star here. I don't know if I can do your stupid little movie. The movie, the movie was a bomb, but uh, you write in your book that you look back on it at this point in time and, and you say, you know, it was a good movie. It was good. I saw it recently. It's, it's really beautiful, and especially the uh, Tom Waits music is incredible. It's so beautiful. Mm. Let's talk about some times in your career where it hasn't been exactly smooth. Let's talk about those speed bumps that... Your autobiography. First of all, I want to know, besides living with multiple sclerosis, why did you choose the title for Speed Bumps? Is it referring to your 
your life as a as a female actor or no i think it was mostly speed bumps is anything that's you know a conflict that you're speeding along in your life and you're on your highway and then someone goes speed bump oh god i have to stop and slow down i don't i can't and and i think it's it's actually a good thing and it's there mm-hmm. to help us and protect us and you know that's why i called it speed bumps it's just a metaphor for the things that make us stop and slow down i originally wanted to call the book um does this wheelchair make me look fat? <laughs> I can't believe they didn't let you call I, it that. Well, because it was a little bit negative. And also, you know, I'm not in a wheelchair. And, but, but the spirit of it is, you know, it's about vanity. It's about, you know, Hollywood and how do you look. It's not, it's not, I'm finding out it's not as important as how you, as what your energy is and what your spirit is and what's in your soul. I know it sounds very new age and all that, but I think it turns out to be true. I think you can survive without the stuff on the outside. Well I, well, I heard in, on Law & Order that they wanted you to put you in a wheelchair, and you're like, I don't even know how to work one or something? Yeah, or? I don't. I, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Like, I so, didn't know. And they said, well, then how about an electric car? I said, oh, that'll, that'll put me out of the <laughs> Right. <laughs> how about a tractor? I don't know. <laughs> uh, then I was going to use a cane, but, you know, it never. I really never had to. So, you know, I'm going to do another Law & Order, and I think, you know, if I have to do it then, I will. But um, Maybe, you know, I, I'd like to see you as a judge. That would be a nice one. Judge hard. They're par- hard, hard parts to play. I guess Judith Light played the one. If Judith Light, I mean, I'm not saying Judith Light is, but you are uh, just as strong of an actor as she is. I would awfully say. Good. She's she, awfully she is good. She's good on that show. You just got to have that sort of balls to the wall, you know, attitude. <laughs> I don't know. I like being a defense attorney, although it's really hard. I used to watch these things like the OJ cases and go, ugh, how can they defend these people? They're awful. And then when it happened, when I had to do it, I went, oh, God, I guess you have to do it. You have to take some other tack. <laughs> oh, it's- well, it's, 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 it's only make-believe, honey. Okay, right. <laughs> it's play acting. So let's talk about, uh, about your appearances. You're almost as well-known for your roles in your films and in television as you are in uh, being a guest on different types of talk shows. And really? I would say so. I mean, uh, certainly like you're, you're, you're almost like David, rumored to be David Letterman's like mistress wife. or something, or wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. and she's been sp- on the show so often. She's been all so- true, all true. And uh, what was sort of going on in your mind when he was talking to you, that he did one show that he was, uh, he was too tired to do a show and he was trying to put you in the shower Trying to get you to take a shower on television. And this is in the, or the late 80s, right? This is before Janet Jackson deflowered all of us. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, yeah, he was doing the show in his office, and so he said, you want to do it? I said, okay. So we go in there, and the show starts, and we start talking, and I, no, there's no laugh, because there's no audience. Yeah, so you don't know if it's funny or not. I said, this is not good. This is dying. We're, we're tanking here. So he said, well, then let's try to do something else, and kept saying, do you want to take a shower? I said, no, I don't want to take a shower. But he said it like 150 times, and finally said, all right, all right, happy? I'll take a shower. And for some reason, that stuck in, every, in everybody's mind. You know, people just thought that was so funny. Well, it, it, and it, it was it showed that you were sort of a person who was very intuitive and willing to try anything for, for entertainment value, you know, that you were really, like, spontaneous. And I think that's part of your strength as an actor, that you bring those aspects into it, don't you think? Oh, I don't know. You know? Yeah, no, no. 
Well, he's actually been uh, interviewed the few times that David Letterman's been interviewed. He actually confessed that you're one of his favorite all-time guests. Did he now? Yes, he did. Believe that. And, uh, <laughs> and I was kind of curious. Why don't you believe that? Well, you're sort of like the Bette Midler to, to his Johnny Carson, you know? I, th- I say, I, I guarantee you, if he ever has a final show, you'll be sitting on his desk singing something to him. Oh, great. <laughs> well, and what do you think you guys have that sort of, uh, sort of chemistry? What is, I mean, is it, is it because of your relationship with your brothers and sort of the... Yes, I absolutely think that. I mean, that's what he reminds me of is my brothers, because they used to tease me. Tease me? They tried to kill me. They tried to kill you? <laughs> well, they tried to push me off the roof. Well, what is that? Murder? <laughs> but, um... And, but he was, you know, funny. He could tease me, but I could tease him back, and I do. I mean, that was what's funny about Letterman, Dave. Mm, mm. But, you know, he's still a piece of cake, let me tell you. <laughs> all those people sure that not. have to be on television all the time, mm-hmm. can you imagine? I mean, they lose their minds. I know, five shows a week. Will, we do five shows a week, and See? it's, it's we a, go a little crazy. It is. A, you, you feel like you're always talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you never stop talking. Now, um, Terry, I, I kind of wanted to go into a more serious thing. When, when you were on Larry King and you were coming out of the closet uh, with multiple sclerosis, at a time where you were sort of coming to terms with, that you even had the disease, right? Um, yeah, kind of, I guess. But, you know, I think Larry King and I had some discrepancies also. How so? <laughs> well, I, I think he wanted me to be more upset than I was, and I never was upset. And I mean, to this day, I don't think he's too happy with me. I just did his show uh, recently, and he wouldn't even MC it. He had Meredith Vieira do it. Because he just doesn't... He hates... He's like, Terry. He wanted you to be more, like, fired up about having MS? Is I think that... he wanted me to be more like um, Montel and kind of cry. And, all that. and I said, you know, it's just my nature. I don't do that. Right. Yeah. And this is I'm something no you... business, darling. I don't care about this. This has been something that you've had for, like, Struggling 20 years. for 20 years, yeah. And just recently diagnosed with. So I'm sure a lot of the processing you've already, you've already done. Yeah. It wasn't like when you finally found out you had MS. It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, I have MS. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't like that. So, so I don't know. He he had a problem with that. Okay, fine. Well, it seems like he was trying to like put pressure on you to be more forthcoming about being a spokesperson. And yeah, that's did you nice. feel like he was like a putting a shiv up against you or something? <laughs> or, or like... I'm glad you said this. I thought so too. And you know, the other day when I did it, there was this guy on. Oh God, I'm blanking his name. Clint, somebody. Clint. He's mm, a I don't, not country singer, and he has Clint MS. Black. Black. No. Somebody else. And he has MS. And he also was a spokesperson for one of the drug companies. And then he didn't say it, him at all. For me, they put a cry on under spokesperson, shill, doing this. You know, but for, not for this other guy, no, it was okay. So there you go. What am I going to do? Well, so, and, and, but now you sort of embrace more of the role as a, I understand that you're a spokesperson for several drugs, I guess, right? Or? Right. Well, I go, the, it's not that I'm a spokesperson. The company, or spokesmodel. I'm a spokesmodel. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, The company that Pfizer and Serono, and I take their drug, but they sponsor these uh, events, which are so great for people that are living with MS. They're called the patient, doctor-patient programs, and we go around to these cities and talk about what it's like to live with MS. And, you know, I really help people that, have MS that they get freaked out and they don't know what's going to happen next and I go settle down it's not going to be so bad and you're going to be okay and it's very rewarding for me but um, 
that's more or less what it's about. It's not about, I don't know, a shill. Well, you're right. meeting people and you're trying to expand awareness and... Yeah. The, the nature of MS, too, is, is for some of our listeners that don't know, is that uh, there's lesions on the mylar, which is a sheath over uh, your, the nerve, nervous system. Well, it's and, not the mylar. The mylar is the thing that's uh, on the curtain. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Myelin. <laughs> myelin sheath. <laughs> the myelin sheath. Bring the sorry. mylar curtain in, boys. We're going to slow down. Okay. I hear you suffer from muscular dystrophy. No. No. <laughs> no. That, yeah, that's the thing. That, that's the Jerry Lewis thing, right? No. That's right. Um, so, why do you think it took such a long time? I mean, do you think it, was, it to be diagnosed with MS was it was there a certain denial or or was it that you were no, grew up as a ballet I, dancer? I really tried to find out what it was, and uh, I went to many doctors for many years. And by the time I got to the doctors, they would say, "Well, honey, you're okay." Because it's a relapsing remitting disease, so the the symptoms would go away. So you know, I never really. Then when I think maybe two in those year, years ago, when I went to the doctor, they if they suspected it was MS, they go, you know, why should we tell her? She has no symptoms. She's doing okay. There's nothing we can do to help her. Let's just shut up about it. I mean, to this day, they do. People say, well, my doctor says there's nothing wrong with me, so I'm not going to do anything. But now there are things to help people. You know. There are drugs that you can take to slow the progression, so it's really better if you have it to, you know, to talk about it and to know. But in those days, they didn't know. There was nothing you can do about it, so I think no one told me. Is, is, the, is the diagnosis better to, to the yeah, this day now? Yeah, and they have a lot better equipment now to talk, you know, to show what, how you have it and if you have it. But I, I really think that, uh, you know, looking back, that if, if people suspected I had MS, they just went, let's not tell her. Well, were you worried you were going to be discriminated or... or well, I was discriminated. I mean, I that's mean, totally true. I mean, it just... I think in Hollywood, you know, if you have a hangnail, you're out. So forget MS. It's over. But I feel like I'm going out there to, you know, to take the hits for everybody else because, um, I don't know. I think if you have MS, you shouldn't... T I kind of advocate. I tell people, don't tell people that you have it because you will be discriminated against and you will be shunned and you might even get fired i mean i've, I've met people who say i told my boss i had ms and they fired me so i don't think it's fair you know it really isn't right mm -hmm. now well, definitely it's not now there are laws in place to fight that kind of discrimination well correct? definitely but it's, it's, there but, are um some guy came up to me and i uh, forget where it was texas and he said i told my boss i had ms and then he fired me so um he wrote it on a, a memo. I'm firing you because you have MS. And he said, oh. My lawyer called it the golden memo. I would have sent him a memo and said, I'm suing you because you're stupid. Well, right. <laughs> but um, he sued this guy and he got $2 million. So I always say to people, you know, just remember, if you play your cards right, there's money in this disease. Get a memo. Money, honey. People get a memo. That's the, the rule of the day. If you ever get discriminated against memos saves lives mm -hmm. right now do you did you ever but i mean as a you sort of grew up as a dancer and it, you had a, a training as a dancer and they're always telling you to push through the pain to yeah. roll through the punches and yeah, i was wondering that's another reason why i didn't get the diagnosis or acknowledge it was because of, of your background as a dancer or, or yeah. not necessarily as an actor 
No, definitely. Uh, as a dancer, you're taught to just yeah to, to don't cr- cry. Now, and you also write in your book that uh, you had an incident where you dropped a, for a movie role, you dropped a champagne bottle and it landed on your foot and caused some trauma. Yeah. Uh, you had a problem with your tendon, and uh, you say that other people have had a similar kind of event happen to them that well, kind of something like traumatic starts the process or triggers it? Yeah, that's what I've heard. They say that uh, trauma can exacerbate the symptoms, and I did remember that as quite a stunning thing that happened to me. And, you know, I, I really think, I, I don't know, I thought maybe that was could have been the beginning of it. But, but then every time I would go to the doctor, they would say, no, no, it's not that, there's nothing wrong. So, God, I don't know. Mm. So do you, uh, what kind of treatments are you taking besides, like, traditional medication? Are you doing, like, bee stings or? No, I don't think bee stings work, actually. But um, Did you try it, though? I just have the image of you, like, getting stung by bees. With, so. <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't know if people are still even doing that. I remember seeing that on television like, I don't know, 10 or 20 yeah. years ago. No, I think it's pretty much they've proven it. I, you know, I stick with the traditional medicine. That's the thing that's been helping me. So uh, there's a thing out there that's interferons, and they're, uh, it's a protein that your body already makes. And so I inject that three times a week, and it slows the progression of the MS. And... Um, there's uh, the one I take is called Rebif, and there's about you know three or four of them on the market, and I I think they really work. So that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, are we expecting to see you in the future on Law and Order at all, or yes. can we? I'm going to do at least one more. Oh goody! So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. That's fun. And I've also you know I've sort of really liked this writing thing. It's fun. So I'm going to try and write another book, you know, The Wit and Wisdom of Terry Garr. I oh, love excellent. it. Yeah. Great title. <laughs> you can come back on our show and talk about it. I would love to. We just adore it. I thought that your book is just so well written. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. It helps Very informative. That, you know, and an extremely enlightening and entertaining book, just like you are. And we want to thank you so much for talking to us today, Terry. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I enjoy Chicago when I come there, too. It's very nice. Terry Garr lives in California, and her brand new book, Speed Bumps, Flooring It Through Hollywood, is available through Penguin Press and Hudson Street Press, also on Amazon.com. If you want to find the link, just visit our website, feastoffools.net. And if you have any comments, please uh, write them on the comment board at feastoffools.net. And if you'd like to write to us, please write to us at uh, feastoffools at gmail.com. Yeah, do so. Please. We love hearing from listeners. Especially if you live in a far off remote parts of the right. world like uh, Africa or Asia or Europe or and we're South s- America. Still waiting to hear from the people in Siberia. Yeah. Who are you? The people who are, uh, we see your, your uh, internet service provider making a little click there on the website. In Siberia. Those people. Well, we a shout out to you, our Russian listeners. Right. Please send us an email, feastoffools at gmail.com. I am Fausto Fernos. And I'm Mark Fillion. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Lady Bunny. Mm. And uh, we're going to have a Feast of Fools holiday special. So stay tuned for that. It's great Christmas music. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So stay tuned. I'm, and thanks for listening. Bye bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.